0: Welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. St Bride's Church on London's Fleet Street is one of the most famous and fascinating historic churches in central London. It's known worldwide as the Journalist Church, offering a spiritual home to all who work in the media. The story of St Bride's is inextricably woven into the heritage of the City of London, with a history that stretches back an astonishing 2,000 years. Its current rector aptly has a passion for history, the Reverend Dr Alison Joyce, was appointed in 2014 and says she probably has the most interesting job in the Church of England. It's my enormous pleasure to welcome Alison today. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you for having
1: me. <laughs> My absolute
0: pleasure. Um, as I think we probably just should delve or start by delving right back, or in fact, no, before that, actually, I'd love to know how you came to be appointed rector of St Bride's.
1: The story I like to tell is that I got the job as a result of a tube strike. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting I, you to say that. <laughs> I was living and working in Birmingham at the time, and I was I was looking for a move. And the only two things I'd ruled out was not central London and not another parish. I love parish ministry, but I just felt the need to use some different muscles for a bit. So I wasn't looking for a job in London, but I came to London for the 20th anniversary celebration of the ordination of women to the priesthood, because I'd been in the first cohort to be ordained priest. So I was invited back for a big jamboree here in the centre of London. And on the day there was a tube strike. And for logistical reasons, those of us who'd been invited had to get ourselves from St. Paul's Cathedral to Westminster Abbey. And because there were no tubes, because normally I'd just have nipped on the, you know, yeah, circle and did a couple of, of stuff. Because yeah. there were no tubes that day, and it was a lovely summer's day, my friend and I decided to walk down Fleet Street. So we, we basically walked from St. Paul's to Westminster Abbey. And she knew central London slightly better than I did and was just pointing out. You know, features. Oh, there's the old Bailey, Royal Courts of Justice. There's some brides. That's the journalist church. You know, it just went that I Oh, jolly interesting. But two days later, the job was advertised. Oh. And I, it, yeah, and um, I wasn't looking for a job in central London. I totally wasn't. But I was just <laughs> nosy. I was just nosy because I'd walked past this place. I thought, oh God, what on earth is a job like that like? You know, it must be completely weird. Yeah and unusually all the information about the job was actually on the church website usually if you want to apply for a job yeah. you have to write yeah, out there is a, rabbit holes and... you've got to be quite interested before you eat. but it was all there on the church's website so oh, i, I could you. snoop completely anonymously no i no <laughs> intention of applying for it and uh, what i saw just wasn't what i was expecting and i, I oh oh I didn't think it, oh gosh that looks interesting and I got to the end of it oh my god I'm going to have to apply. I don't want a job in London <laughs> for this one. and uh, remarkably I got it so it pulled just, you in <laughs> totally and it's just been so much my job I mean it's one of those classic things that had anyone said to me completely cold do you fancy applying for the job of rector of St Bride's Fleet Street? I just said, oh no, oh, all that working with journalists, oh no. <laughs> you know. Um, but but because of the way it kind of came to me, and I just love it. And I do love you. my work with journalists. I love my work with the media. It's a job that gets me into all kinds of places and situations and meeting yeah. people that clergy never normally get oh, to
0: do. Interesting. So it opens up a whole new world nice. in a way. And what Absolutely. serendipity as well to have walked past it. Oh, yes. <laughs> it just piques that interest in your curiosity. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But that's the way life should work, shouldn't it, I think? Just Absolutely. not too Absolutely. planned out, full of surprises. Yeah. So let's delve right back to the beginning, if we may. Is it true that St Bride's is one of the oldest sites of worship in Britain?
1: It's pretty old. I mean, the, the <laughs> church I'm in today is the eighth church on this site. And the earliest church here was 6th century. So you go right back to, you know, very early Christian times here. It is quite possible it was a pagan place of worship, the site was, before it became a Christian church. The reason being, we do have a holy well on the site. It's now dried up, but Bridewell was in fact a holy well. That's uh, where the name Bridewell, which is... Oh,
0: that's, that was my next question. I wondered whether... Ah, uh, yes. right, I've got um, you...
1: Absolutely. So, and also, of course, it was absolutely standard for the earliest churches to be built on top of pagan sites. So it's not that's not unusual. So we don't know for certain what the long term history of this as a religious site yeah. is. But certainly as a church, it goes back to the sixth century. Yeah, which um, is astonishing, a, isn't it? A, a, a clergy in, in in central London vie amongst themselves. Like, who's got they? The- Oh, is there yeah. some competitiveness then? <laughs> I just like to think we're very, very ancient. That'll do. For... <laughs> the word ancient
0: trumps it, I think. And Absolutely. I'm intrigued by the well. Is that connected to the fact that there was a river that flowed? Is it, am I right in thinking that there was a river that flowed? Oh, the, the Fleet under the River. Fleet
1: the Fleet River is still there. The Fleet oh. River runs down to the Thames, and it is still there. It's just underground these days. It was covered over. So if you drive, you know, basically, I think it it. Still comes out under Blackfriars Bridge somewhere, but there is an underground river that's the Fleet. So fascinated
0: um, by the underground spaces of London, yeah.
1: So there is underground, but this was a well. It dried up a very long time ago, but we still get people kind of wanting to come. Oh, get with the vibes of of Bridewell and. Oh and- really. <laughs> You're always disappointed when I tell them it's probably underneath my garage. So, it's, uh... <laughs> and it's a long, long dried up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um,
0: but I do understand. For the 17th century, Fleet Street was was obviously attracting the great writers and diarists of the day. I think Samuel Pepys was born in a house adjacent to St Bride's right and was baptised yes, he... at the church. Is that
1: is that true? That's absolutely true. His father John had a tailor's shop right next door in Salisbury Court. And it basically virtually connected with the church, um, so his yes he was baptized here we've got actually I have in my possession a, a copy of his baptism entry, oh, His little brothers insane. and sisters were tragically a lot of them died very young, as did his brother, who I think lived to be a young adult, and they were all ba- they were all buried here, and his mother, Margaret, had her own pew here, so they yeah, absolutely. In those days, you paid a pew rent. You know, you didn't. Yeah, uh, you you, know, you, you oh, could have your own yes. pew for a, for a sum of money. So um,
0: it seems kind of poignant that because a lot of the events that we're going to discuss in a minute, he obviously wrote about. Um, yeah. So vividly, and so I think it was during the Great Plague of 1665 mm-hmm. that I understand the court of Charles II, along with the wealthier inhabitants of London, fled the city in fear. But of course, the poor. Paul had no choice but to stay Mm. and I Mm. hope I'm right in saying that over 2,000 people died in St Bride's Parish. Is it true that the vicar of St Bride's, I think he was called Richard Pearson, chose to remain and at the height of the plague buried something like six or over 600 people within a
1: month? Yeah that's absolutely true and I can I can vouch for the actual number because I've handled the plague register, the burial register for the plague. Oh, still, yes, wow. I accessed it. it's in the Guildhall Library. I've had it through the London Metropolitan Archive because when I was researching all of this, I was just really interesting. And yeah. I have handled the register in which the deaths are recorded. Oh. So the fact that there are, you know, 636 people he buried in September, and on the 11th of September 1665 he buried 43 people. I can vouch for that because I counted, and. <laughs> It, and what's so heartbreaking about those entries is, uh, firstly, he just signs the bottom of each page. Normally, when you bury people, you sign the register against each burial. He just signs the bottom of the page there because there are so the sheer many... there's quantity of it. Yeah, and also he's he's burying whole families. He's burying people whose names he doesn't know. I mean, you you find entries that say, a poor man we found in such oh. and such a breed it, it's heartbreaking it's hard and, to wrap your head around those the numbers uh, and and also the fact that Richard Pearson stayed I mean most of the clergy fled for the hills I'm horribly afraid I might have been one of them <laughs> I was um, gonna ask but, what you feel Richard, you'd have done yeah Richard Pearson stayed at his post here and the chap at Covent Garden St Paul's Covent Garden he stayed most of the others just left of course it's worth remembering it, I I remember during Covid being incredibly inspired by his example really actually I've got it easy he was dealing with great plague you know he was dealing with deaths on that you know and very sobering and it's worth remembering that at the time it was the church that was the sole source of support for the poor you know the kind of poor relief that was available you know a lot of it was was mediated through the church. And so it mattered enormously that he stayed here. He buried one of his church wardens. Really? His brother then took over that that task. Lots of the detail is fascinating.
0: What a remarkable
1: man. They had to get people to bury... Sorry, I just want to hijack this entire. No, no,
0: it's so interesting. Please, please continue.
1: You can imagine they had all these dead bodies... You've got to employ people to bury them. Nobody wants to do it, so they're paid a huge amount of money i mean it was you know vast amount of money to the grave diggers and We know that a chap called Henry Meads was employed by this church St. bride to bury the dead during the plague, and he lasted a fortnight <gasps> and those who buried the dead they had to live in shacks in the churchyard because the danger of contamination was so oh, was so great you know the for the a grisly fear of the job, yeah.
0: So Henry Mead was there along with Richard Pearson doing that unenviable job. Yeah, but he tough, has passed but,
1: very long at it. Yeah. No.
0: And how interesting are you saying that when COVID struck, you look back, and history's a great leveller, isn't it? I think when we look back, we can learn so much and never is that more pertinent than in that particular
1: case. Totally, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, what, and
0: and amazing to hear the the role that the church played in the life of the poor, who yeah, yeah. Like say would have no other source of comfort or support no welfare state what could they do
1: but i mean the the example of my predecessors in this post i mean another guy john cardmaker was burnt at the stake in smithfield under the mary the first uh he's a protestant martyr together with two of our parishioners and you know the fact that he was yes 1555 john cardmaker former vicar of st brides was burnt at the stake and the following year two of his parishioners were and they went They went to the stake for their faith. I mean, Isabel Foster mm. and Thomas Brown, who were the parishioners who were burnt at the stake from St. Bride's, they, they were martyred. They're in Fo- Fox's Book of Martyrs, this is why we know about them, because they refused to attend church. And they refused to attend church because it was the Catholic mass and they regarded it as idolatrous. But it does make you think, good heavens, <laughs> would I have been prepared to do yeah that because john cardmaker could have got off he recanted you know and and then he withdrew his recantation so he did that really knowing knowing he would die you know extraordinarily
0: humbling isn't it looking back on the lives of your predecessors and realizing the unimaginable situations they faced
1: yeah absolutely
0: and and it was soon ish after the well year really wasn't it after that event that another disaster befell London and sadly the church was left in ruins during the great fire of London mm. are you able to think more about the church during that time I think I read yeah. that all that could be saved from the fire was some fused bell metal and um, that th- there's another
1: whole story about <laughs> my predecessors in, in, really in, uh, yes because Richard there's Pierce, a book in this I'm sure I'm totally- um, Richard Pearson remarkably survived the plague. How I mean it's it absolutely miracle that he did, given that you know those who were working alongside him didn't, yeah. but he survived. He left St. Brides in August sixteen sixty six, and his successor, a man called Paul Boston, then took over as as here. And uh, Paul Boston was vicar here for a fortnight before the great fire of London <laughs> burned. That's, <his> that's <throat> a bad introduction to the job. <laughs>
0: We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, bestselling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out The Happy Writer Podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram, at Happy Writer (laughs) Podcast.
1: Absolutely. What is absolutely astonishing about Paul Boston, and again, you know, one is so inspired by the examples of one's predecessors. Paul Boston, who has this crumbling, and it's just a pile of red-hot crumbling waste, really, he continues holding services in in the churchyard he had a li- little tabernacle built in the churchyard so the worship continued and he was there until about 1671 when Christopher Wren was kind of putting the foundations down for the next for the the the, the subsequent church the outline of which you still see today because the walls and the spire are still original Christopher Wren's so um, so Paul Boston is there. He keeps the the church going and the worship going, and uh, he leaves at about that time. And he, I think, I suspect he was ill because he left a will at about that time. And he left some money for the poor of the parish who'd been whose lives have been ravaged by the Great Fire. He left some money also for the church to buy some communion plate because of course so much had been destroyed and we didn't have a chalice and pattern that was ours at the time and those are the two vessels that I use every Sunday morning Really, and one of them has the name Paul Boston engraved in it so every Sunday morning here I have a direct connection with the Great Fire of London in celebrating communion, using vessels that we bought with the bequest from Paul Boston. Like a tangible
0: and, link to the past. Yeah.
1: And he's named in them, you know.
0: And I love that we're talking about him, you know, that that yeah. we're using his name and his predecessor as well, because, I mean, the fact that he carried on preaching. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes. an amazing and again, example. All the adversity, and if ever I have a bad day, I just think <laughs> about you think back about Paul and I don't Richard. Know
0: what a bad day looks like. I didn't have to fight fire and pestilence and famine Absolutely. and disease. Absolutely, totally. Although you have had to fight, you know, you have had COVID to contend with. So we, you know,
1: mild by comparison. Well, i suppose.
0: had
1: its challenges. It's just it's
0: staggering the weight of history. Thinking about yeah the various trials um, that the church has undergone and and the incumbent vicars have had to go through. So it took. I think nine years for St Brides to reappear from the ashes of that fire, I think under the direction of Christopher Wren. Yeah. Are you able to tell us something of the story of the church spire inspiring the distinctive design of the wedding cake?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Christopher Wren, of course, had a very distinctive style and yeah. ours is, is often known as the wedding cake spire. And uh, the story is absolutely true that there was a, a, a baker in Ludgate, which, um, which abuts Fleet Street, so just up the road from here, who could see St. Bride's Spire from, from where he was working. And he created a wedding cake based on the spire of St. Bride's. And these were very popular, partly because it's very novel and distinctive, but also apparently because he used to use a particularly fine... Uh, Kind of French brandy in his cake mix, which is a detail people don't always know. And <laughs> really, uh, so and there th- th- there are various versions of the story. One one version very much associates it with him wanting to marry his boss's daughter, who was a woman called Susanna Pritchard. Now, it is absolutely true that he married Susanna Pritchard, and we know that because we've got a bit of her wedding dress, and we've Have got. You? party dress yes indeed we've just had it we've had it conserved we're waiting for a new display case so hopefully that will be on display very soon so we've got you know occasionally i hear american tour guides are usually american tour guides outside day. of course there's this myth that you know is hang on a minute hang on, it's all true we've got the, we've got the dress to prove it um, <laughs> so um it's it's quite unclear i've i've seen conflicting evidence about whether Susanna um who was to become susanna rich was the daughter of his boss or whether she was just a woman he wanted to marry so right. I, but you know the, the, you these stories gather yeah. kind of embellishments so um but it is a wonderful good. story nonetheless oh and we should, we should have patented it. We should have patented
0: that design. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think how many how many millions million, of wedding cakes have since oh, been made yeah. in that distinctive design, if yes. only. Yeah. <laughs> it's just another fascinating little facet of the history of this extraordinary church, though, isn't it? Yeah. And then we, we come back to fire again, unfortunately, don't we? Because on December the 29th, 1940, St. Brides fell victim once again to flames as German incendiary bombs reduced this architectural jewel to a roofless shell. It's kind of hard to imagine the inferno that must have engulfed the church because I think that was the night they called the second great fire of London, didn't they? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. It swept through the the centre of London or through the city of London as well. Do we know who was the rector then?
1: Yes, we do. He was a man called uh, Arthur Taylor, prebendary Arthur Taylor. We've recently unearthed a photograph of him taking a memorial service in this church about 10 days before it was destroyed. And it's so poignant to see him standing in front of his congregation. So he was quite elderly by then. And quite honestly, I think he was so devastated by the loss of the church. I, I mean, he just about survived the war and died not long after but I think his heart was no longer in it. He'd only think... gone
0: through three months of the Blitz by then, hadn't oh, he? Oh,
1: totally. So sadly, he died not not long after that. And then oh, really? uh, very inspiring. Uh, he was a bit of a one-off with Cyril Armitage, who was a canon of Westminster Abbey, who was a bit of a handful. I think that's a polite way of saying it. The dean of the de- Abbey. <laughs> <the> de- <laughs> found him a bit of a handful and the Bishop of London has got this burnt out wreck of a church and somehow between them they decided he was the chap they needed to put in charge of this smouldering ruin and remarkably he just raised it from the ashes so we have a you know his his grandson still worships with us quite really? often. Really? But so we still have a connection with his, his family. But um and he did an absolutely astonishing job. And the newspapers, I mean, we haven't yet spoken about, you know, one of the single biggest parts no, of our we'll, history, which is, yeah, which is the, the... our links with printing and journalism. But um Cyril Armitage very much got the you know, the newspapers on board. And I do love the fact I have been told that one of the newspapers that helped contribute towards the rebuilding of this church was the Jewish Chronicle. And that matters so much because we are here for journalists of all faiths and none, you know, within the last year, we've done a memorial service for a Jewish journalist and his Orthodox rabbi came and led prayers. You know, we've, we've had services for Muslims here. We are here for journalists. It is a sacred space. It will always be, in essence, a Christian service because you know, that is what we offer. But we are accommodating to people of all faiths and none.
0: As should be, you know, now more of all, of all times, really. That Absolutely. feels pertinent, doesn't yeah. it? Isn't that wonderful though? To think that the Jewish Chronicle were one of the biggest contributors of what funds to well, they rebuild? I don't they were one of the biggest, but, but I, I am
1: told that they did contribute. They did <laughs>
0: contribute. That's significant, though, isn't it? And I think that's very mm. telling. And I suppose so. Good, good to see that it got built very quickly this time after the, after the Blitz.
1: Yeah.
0: So it was then some while later. Let me work this out. So that was nineteen forty-one so some 12 years later, I think, that during excavations in 1953, that some important discoveries were made by the medieval archaeologists with the wonderful name of Professor
1: W.F. Grimes. Yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, Just, I'll give you a bit of background to that because yeah, please do. like many city churches, we had a crypt. And of course, a lot of the history of the church was down in the crypt. The crypt was absolutely full of, you know, skeletal remains, burials, caskets, and so on. And in 1854, there was a huge cholera epidemic in London. And because all the churches were overwhelmed with the dead that they had to bury, it was getting deeply insanitary. And that's when a law was passed which closed all the city churchyards and crypts, um, which is why people now have to be buried out in the, in the, civic cemeteries you know places like highgate and so yeah. on uh, which is, you can no longer be buried in central Ashes central can London, be interred, yeah. but you can't be buried now in in the city because of that and the consequence of that was our crypt was sealed in 1854 and nobody had been down here and of course there had never been an archaeological excavation because they didn't do it before then you know
0: no it just um, the sort of thing so, they've
1: done and particularly because it was just full of the dead. So it was only when, you know, as we say politely, we were reordered by the Luftwaffe in the, <laughs> during the war. that uh, they had, you know, we had occasion to dig down because they had to excavate in order to rebuild. Yeah. And it was only then that they discovered the true history of the church. They discovered our Roman pavement. We have a Roman tessellated pavement dating back to AD 180, you know, various Roman ruins here. We have a charnel house full of the bones of my medieval parishioners, you know, and all of this was discovered during that excavation.
0: Astonishing to think that it took a German bomb for that to happen. They would have stayed there, wouldn't they? I mean, I guess, well, would they? I don't know,
1: but probably. Well, you know, one wouldn't necessarily have had occasion to, to excavate other than that.
0: And, and as yeah. we're actually talking, I believe you're sitting, your office now is is, is in the crypt. Is that correct? Yep, I'm just... in
1: one of the burial chambers that was excavated. <laughs> I've never interviewed someone in a burial chamber before, <laughs> no, a former burial chamber. Yes, they do let me out occasionally. Um, but it's <laughs> <laughs> recently, I, I didn't know it was a burial chamber. I'm not the first rector here to, to use it as a study. It was, no, you know, sure. It was created as a as a working space. When it was first excavated, but it's a fabulous vaulted. It's a very large vaulted room. It's fantastic, but I was slightly taken aback not long ago, about two or three months ago, to see for the first time a photo of this room when it was full of bones, and it was just full of bones. Ooh. So uh, good job I'm not spooked by that. And occasionally, if I'm down here at kind of very late at night and I'm the only work person on the premises, I. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good job! I'm not spooked by this.
0: That's quite yeah. That's quite a jarring moment, isn't it? Where you think when well, your <laughs> desk was was a Charnel House. Absolutely, yeah. I absolutely. mean, I'd have I would have done anything to be present at those discoveries. I think it's just yeah. for me so fascinating to think that this the walls of the keepers is so much history. Do you ever get a sense of that? Do you feel it, or you sort of you're just there every day and it's part of your life? Do you, but do you get like I don't suppose we call them the history shivers, but just moments where you just become
1: aware of all the time all the time really we have two chapels down in the crypt and of course when you're down in the crypt you're closest to the history of the place and uh in the slightly they're both small chapels but the slightly larger of the two we say morning prayer here every morning in there and where i sit i can see the roman pavement I can see the 11th century and 12th century walls of the earlier churches. And you are down at the level of the original London, because, of course, London these days is higher up than it used to be. And the river, of course, is narrower and deeper than it used to be. So you have a real sense of of just connecting with the antiquity of the place. And there's something, you know, T.S. Eliot talks about the experience. It's in Little Gidding of kneeling where prayer has been valid, kneeling where prayer has been valid. And occasionally you get such a sense of that. And the other little, we've got a little medieval chapel where, funny enough, I did a wedding blessing in there last week. Just a couple and a photographer and me, this tiny little chapel. And I think it's it's a 14th century space, you know. And you just think about... All the events in London that those walls have seen, mm-hmm. you know, and the joyful ones and the tragic ones, and just the prayers of the centuries are so soaked up in the walls here.
0: It must be those walls must sing with stories. They must have just absorbed yeah. so much of the feeling and the passion and the and the history that's passed through it. It's hard to get. Absolutely. It's hard to get your head around the enormity of that history. You looking yeah. at a tessellated Roman pavement every morning. Yeah. And something sunk down into
1: the ground of that history. That's right. And something we're actively recovering at the moment is our links with Bridget of Kildare. Because our St. Bride is Bridget of Kildare. She is our patron saint. So we're Irish. We are Irish. We are we were founded (laughs) by Irish religious in the sixth century. And so earlier this year, I actually had a sabbatical and I went over to Kildare. Um, just to get with the vibes of St Bridget, and on the back of that, because next year is incredibly significant because it's the fifteen hundredth anniversary, fifteen hundredth anniversary of the death of Bridget of Kildare next year, and there's going to be that Ireland is making her day a national holiday, right? That they're elevating her to their matron saint. St Patrick's the patron saint. St Bridget of Kildare is going to be the matron, matron saint.
0: saint. Oh, I need to find out more about this. Um,
1: Amazingly, on St. Bridget's Day, which is the 1st of February next year, on the 1500th anniversary, I've been invited to go and preach at Kildare Cathedral. Have you? So we're really making links between St. Bride's Fleet Street and our Mother Church. Oh, the mothership is calling. (laughs) Absolutely, in in Kildare. So, and again, that is so important for kind of ecumenical reasons because most of, of St. Bridget's is very much an Irish catholic saint in many ways mm. St. bridget's cathedral in kildare is anglican funnily enough but she's very much a, a catholic saint and the fact that we work together with our wonderful brothers and sisters in the irish chaplaincy here in london very much a catholic organization mm. and actually bridget cuts through all of that you know the celtic tradition with its focus on creation and peace and all of that is so important
0: that's stra- extraordinary i wasn't expecting you to say that mm to encompass so much faith as well as history absolutely yeah so I feel we we should probably talk about journalists (laughs) and um and the connection between the church and journalists can you tell us a little bit more about the famous journalists altar and some of the notable journalists remembered by the church and supported by the church of course
1: yes indeed quick bit of background before I get there we were the printer's church from the year 1500 so our, our links with the world of journalism actually start with printing centuries before and there's a whole story connected with that but just to fast forward to your question because the printing industry was set up in fleet street this is where the journalists work this is where the newspapers were set up so we were the printer's church first we were then the church of the newspapers and Church of the Journalists, which we have been ever since there have been journalists. So, um, you know, it's always been part of what we do. So the story behind the journalist's altar is that uh, you may remember that uh, when John McCarthy and Terry Anderson were ta- held hostage in Beirut for all those years, who who were, uh, Terry Waite was also, but, but the journalists were, were um, John McCarthy and Terry Anderson, and uh, vigils were held for them here. While during their captivity, they were not forgotten here. And it was that experience of holding vigils. And on his release, uh, John McCarthy came here for a special service commemorating his release. And he was back here again in, I think, 2021 to mark the special anniversary 30 years since his release so he came back and we recorded a a program for I think it was um, a a Radio 4 program Archive on 4 just reflecting on his experience of being released so he came back here for that so it was that having that special place as a focus then gave rise to the idea we should have it as a commemorative place within the church dedicated to journalists and All journalists we record there. We have so many plaques, we can't put them out all at the same time. So what we tend to do is if it's somebody who died recently, if it's somebody whose anniversary is coming up, if it's somebody who is particularly close to people's hearts, we will keep that uh, plaque up. If families and friends and colleagues want to visit the altar to commemorate someone, we will make sure their plaque is out. But everyone is there. Some some journalists who were killed during the course of their work. A famous example is Marie Colvin, who you may oh, remember yes. was killed yes. in home, Syria. Yeah. There's a famous photo of her. She had the black fire patch, patch yeah. I remember. And the famous photograph of her, which people tend to use when as an image, is taken in front of our altar if you see there's a photo behind that there's a a painting of the crucifixion behind her on that photo and that was taken here and we have um because she spoke here about 15 months before she was killed so she was very close to our hearts but you range from really quite well-known figures from the world of of journalism to people who nobody's ever heard of i mean there was a a, a young woman called Rachel Nurse, who died of ovarian cancer at the age of 23, who worked for, I think it was the South Wales Argus, and she's there. You well, know. That's really important, so, actually, because yeah,
0: good local investigative journalist plays a really good role within its community, absolutely. so they should be remo- rightly absolutely. remembered.
1: So, so I think the it's not just, you know, we, we do have the big names and, and so on, it's so
0: Just the celebrity journalists, or not a lot at of at celebrities, all. not the That's
1: right a, word, but the the well known ones, but
0: the absolutely. the ones that make a difference in the everyday lives.
1: Absolutely, and also we're here for living journalists. I mean, a month after the invasion of Ukraine, we had, well, if you remember, journalists covering that uh, that invasion were in Kiev, trapped in bunkers under the city. If you remember the first yeah. day, I do, when, I do, remember, when, yeah, when the invasion happened. And a lot of them we knew and a lot of journalists had friends and colleagues who were there. And I remember I sent a couple of text messages to one or two people I knew who were there at the time and got messages back saying, thank you so much for thinking about us. Your prayers really matter. And these are people who aren't even particularly religious, but somehow the fact that we were here thinking about them was so important. So I do have a meeting with somebody I know in the industry and between us, we thought we ought to have a service just for the journalists who are covering Ukraine. So it was, you know, I think it was 24th of March, it was exactly a month after the invasion in February that we had a special service of, you know, readings and reflections. And Raphael Valfish came and played the cello. Uh, you know, a, amazing service. and oh, beautiful. You, you know, the people from all... Parts of the media the newspapers the bbc you know television journalism everyone came and that was very much but by that stage two or three journalists had been killed in ukraine but that was more importantly just such a statement of affirmation and support of the journalists who were out there you know yeah
0: and continuing the work that they do in a way because you're shining a light on Absolutely. what it is that they're trying to achieve and you're a focal point for that
1: Absolutely, and the current you know, heartbreaking, heartbreaking conflict in, in Israel and Gaza. Oh, uh, yeah. I think you know that I, I was actually in Israel yes. when when Can the conflict you tell us broke about out. That? I will, yes. And but while I was there, eleven journalists were killed. I think it's now something like sixty-eight. We have six plaques on our journalist altar uh, containing um, the names of journalists who have been killed during the conflict not that, broke it was out that was high. In October. yeah so uh, yes I was I was out in Israel on the 7th of October in fact I was traveling on a bus between Jerusalem and the West Bank on the morning when you know Hamas launched its appalling attack and and the reason i was there was i i serve on an international commission working with the orthodox church and we move we go to different countries each year usually in october we were being hosted by the anglican church in jerusalem on that occasion which is why which is why we were there by bizarre bizarre coincidence my elder daughter was also in jerusalem on holiday and her father was also in Jerusalem, studying really? the Acolique League. So three members of my family were oh. out at the same time. And it was a very, very chastening experience to be out there. And yes, there were sirens know. and missile attacks. And I ended up being basically in lockdown in Jerusalem for about a week. You know, foreign nationals were trying to get out, as you can imagine, because... We didn't know what was going to happen. And and the terrifying thing was a lot of people thought Jerusalem might go up, you know, in smoke really, because there have been so many tensions there recently. I was kind of in in lockdown in the cathedral complex. We were staying in the guest house cathedral, and there's a, a college there as well. And so on the day after... All the hostilities broke out so Sunday morning there was a service at the cathedral and you know amidst all the horror and the fear and the escalation of violence and you know you just thought what is going to happen here mm. and the full horror of what Hamas had done was becoming apparent but also one was so fearful for you know the women and children of Gaza and, and all of that, you know your heart goes out to everyone caught up in these horrific yeah. events,
0: and, and to almost, be absolutely caught up in it as well, and not yeah. knowing what would unravel from hour to hour. Exactly.
1: Um, and so you know because we were there in the complex, and we we had a service on the Sunday morning. This is the day after it all happened. And I was there in this cathedral, St. George's Cathedral in Jerusalem, and it was a service that was bilingual. It was in English and Arabic, completely bilingual. We were there, a lot of Anglicans, but also all my Orthodox brothers were there as well because they were there as part of the the commission I was serving on. And bizarrely, there was just this profound sense of stillness and sanity and prayers for peace amidst all the chaos so I'm I'm, I'm still quite affected by that experience. It's
0: incredibly moving to witness that and to f- have th- that stillness in such you, you we all see those images they're almost sort of burnt into our brains aren't they you don't imagine yeah. a moment of stillness to in in the midst of such no.
1: chaos. No and in the, the next few days I mean I spent quite a lot of time in there's a little chapel in the cathedral and because, you know, we carried on with the work of the commission weirdly, because there was nothing else to do. Oh, so we did. Right. Um, it became more important than ever. Most of the people with me had to get out and were, you know, were trying to get other flights. And I was flying with a carrier that was still flying. Most of them didn't. Most of them were cancelling flights. And it seemed sensible just to stick with that one. So I was one of the last to leave. So more and more people left. But, you know, when there were spaces, I found myself going back into that cathedral and just spending time like there that. how's yeah. that changed you has it changed um, you yeah I think I feel far more connected with the grief of the world than I've ever done so before right. because you know I think we're all affected by the horrific things you see on the television screen but somehow if you've glimpsed it that closely it starts to feel you start mm. to feel it personally in a deep deep way so you know, we pray for the peace of the Holy Land every single day here and our hearts are out with, go out to the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know, and they are, it is such a beautiful country mm. that is so ravaged by war and conflict and its terrible, turbulent history.
0: It's almost, it's inconceivably painful. And I I feel like there just seems to be a lot of, pain and conflict and anger we're a very polarised it feels to me anyway that we're a very polarised world right now Mm. how do you do you feel that we find a way to keep searching for hope
1: yeah
0: and Um, for light because that's so
1: important isn't it yeah I mean I think just that experience of being in the cathedral and finding that stillness I think sometimes finding solutions to problems as big as that feels beyond human power and i think sometimes we just need to be still seek god
0: yeah
1: find strength find hope find courage and do whatever little bit we can yeah Um, it's
0: occurring to me as you speak that actually we only need to look back on the history of your Church to see how man has, have we, have faith has overcome. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean they they call St Bride's the Phoenix of Fleet Street because it keeps <laughs> rising in the ashes. And yes, I think that. And somehow, it's just finding those glimpses of hope even in the darkest moments that 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 keeps you going and saying, yeah, I don't know the answer to this. It feels far too overwhelming, Mm -hmm. but somehow in the fragments and the fractured reality. And also, you encounter such profound goodness and selflessness and hope in people. I mean, the current Archbishop of Jerusalem, Hossam, is one of the wisest, holiest people I've ever met Um, he was with us during during our time there and he is there in the thick of it all and his prayers are so much prayers of compassion and you know it's people like him
0: yeah
1: that 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 kind of give me hope and and sometimes it's the most surprising of people you know doing the most unexpected of things and just acts of generosity people coming together across the divide people saying there's an end to this cycle if there's an end to this cycle of violence and counter violence it's got to be me reaching out to you across it
0: you know yeah yeah I like that description they're sort of looking down and and just looking even for the pinprick of hope no matter how yeah soon, that, that yeah. can be often enough yeah it's extraordinary is so um emotional actually to listen to you talking about it bringing it home the the yeah. pain that people are suffering at the moment
1: yeah
0: I don't really almost want to move on from that but <laughs> I suppose I do need to because I want to ask you about um, in 2019 you were one of 100 women to be granted the freedom of the city of London in an yep. initiative marking the centenary of women being granted the vote in this country what did that mean
1: to you? Oh, it was, a, it was a big surprise, um, but it was a real privilege, obviously, and an honour. And in a way, I mean, it was wonderful that that event, the centenary of that event was being marked in that way. And kind of shocking to think it's only been 100 years, you know. My my grandmother was born before women had the vote, you know, that, and it's kind of quite shocking. But also, in a funny kind of way, it felt significant because it symbolised how the church is so profoundly connected with the life of the city. You know, I'm, the, the, people often think church going is such a niche and rarefied activity these days, but actually we're out there. We're trying to work as a force for good with people across the city. The church is, is deeply involved with many of the, the ceremonies, the ceremonial of the city. And, it's it's wonderful just to be able to be connected in that way so i think it it was meaningful in all kinds of different ways Yeah, i'm not
0: surprised because you're right 100 years it doesn't you know in in the span of things does not really feel that long not when you look at it you set it against the wider history of saint brides it's a drop in the ocean Um, yeah um and I think, you know, to me, it's wonderful to see women being recognized for achievements and, and given a voice and a platform. And so this feels actually like quite a timely place to discuss a woman who was never granted that fundamental right and whose voice and memory have sort of tragically become intertwined with her death. And I hope I'm right in saying that it was on the 16th of January, 1864, Mary Ann Walker, known to those who loved her as Polly, married William Nichols at St. Bride's Fleet Street. And on the 31st of August, 1888, her body was found just over two miles away in Whitechapel. Um, So today I'm sure when people listen to this have probably guessed the connection with the word Nichols, but today her name most often appears in works that focuses on her killer, Jack the Ripper, can you tell us a little bit more about this woman and her life as opposed to her death?
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, and if I uh, probably I need to explain how I came to discover Yeah, Please it. do. There's a whole industry of Jack the Ripper trails around oh. Whitechapel. You know, oh, it's, it's, yeah, big it's tourist a tourist and, in its own right. And, um, a, a charity called Beyond the Streets set up an alternative tour which didn't talk about the killer at all. It just told the lives of the women. So I thought, that sounds interesting. I'd never particularly wanted to go on a Jack Ripper tour, but I thought, actually, this sounds interesting. So it was a summer's evening in, uh, I think, the end of May in 2018, and I turned up. And it was amazing. And it was an amazing experience on all kinds of levels. Firstly, because you discovered so much about the conditions in which, you know, working-class Victorian women, particularly those who are down on their luck, the the kinds of of circumstances they found themselves in. It was startling because Beyond the Streets, which is a charity that works with women affected by sexual exploitation in London today, were drawing parallels between their plight and the plight of women in London today, Uh, many of whom, of course, are from Eastern Europe. Those are the ones who often get kind of... Drawn into yeah, the second trade yeah. and so on, but my ears really picked up when a part of the tour, one of the the, the, the person leading it said uh, spoke about Polly Nichols and said she was born just off Shoe Lane. Now Shoe Lane is about hundred yards from where I am currently sitting. She was a parishioner of ours, so my ears pricked up. Good heavens, Ooh. this woman was a parishioner. So I came away. And did some research, and it was then that I discovered that she had actually been married here in 1864, as you said. She so she'd been born within hundred yards of the church. She was married here. She married a printer. William Nichols was a printer who lived in Bowery Street, just the other side of St. Price. So their whole life was based around here, and most of their married life was, you know, in in and around this area. Now, by sheer fluke, as I was doing my very kind of amateurish uh, investigations. Hallie Rubenhold's book. Oh, I was just going to ask if you'd read that. Being prepared for publication, you see, and so I, you know, you can imagine I leapt on it as soon as it was out, and that filled a lot, a lot of the of the blanks. Yeah. So, I the funny thing about being a parish priest is you have a duty of care. If you're an Anglican parish priest, you have a duty of care to everybody resident in your parish they may choose not to ask you for a duty you know for your ministry but you have a duty of care to them if they if they do and for me it's always felt that there's a historical dimension to that as well and I felt a real duty of care to Polly Nichols particularly when I discovered and I was increasingly outraged at the way in which she has she's often referred to as just a prostitute they were just prostitutes I mean, what's the word just doing in that sentence anyway? But more than that, she wasn't. You know, she was a respectable married woman who had five children. They, She and her husband had a flat in the Peabody Flats for part of their married life. And you had to be judged morally upright to be considered for one of those flats. So that is her background. Now, her life fell apart. Her marriage fell apart. Her husband was unfaithful. It looks as if Polly Nichols had a problem with alcohol. So, you know, a lot of events kind of overtook her against her. She ends up destitute. Of course, these were the days in which children were regarded as the property of the father. She ends up with nothing. She's destitute. And it was on the. 30th of uh, August 1888, that she was in a doss house in Whitechapel and she didn't have the fourpence she needed for a bed for the night. And that's why she was out on the streets at the night of her murder. Now, have it, so I I felt quite impassioned about. Yeah, you know, you angry. Oh, totally. And particularly given the parallels with life today, I think that was the other dimension to it. So, on what would have been her, I think, 173rd birthday, because her birthday was 26th of August. We we had a service for her here. We had a service oh. for her here. And we used it as a fundraiser for Beyond the Streets. So we very much tied it in with their work and to support that charity. And we sang hymns that would have been sung here at St. Bride's during her lifetime. So we had some good Victorian hymns. We had some Eastern European modern choral music very much reflecting the tradition of the of the women who are affected by sexual exploitation today, many of whom come from those backgrounds. And um we raised a lot of money. And it was it was extraordinary and and you I know it lots was. Of people oh to- I would have loved to have heard about it. And, and at, that. at the end of that, at the end of the service, somebody came up to me and said, you should have a memorial, you know, a, a stone memorial to her in, in the church. And I thought, yes, we should so I said to the congregation, do you think we can raise the money for this? And I mean, it, they're not cheap, you know, £1,000 to you know, probably about £2,000 for, for a, a monument like that. And I had the money in a fortnight. Really? It was, it just came in. Um, so that's why we put the plaque up. And it was it happened about three days before the, the first lockdown. This is in March 2020. Oh, you got there just in I the nick of time. Installed. And it says on it, it gives her name and her dates and it says married, a parishioner of St. Bride's married here. And it gives the date. And uh, it says at the bottom, remember her life, not its end, because that's the message. Remember her life. This was a living, breathing, precious human being, a child of God. Yeah. You know, it's
0: so important to remember that, isn't it? Because I think these women... Their dignity has been stripped from them by the treatment over the years, hasn't it? Of you know us tramping around on tours and guessing yeah. at the, the identity of a killer. Well, who cares, really? Actually, these right. were women, mothers, sisters, yeah. wives, human yeah. beings
1: right. who totally. did not
0: deserve that. Why do you think we're so fascinated with the life of Jack the Ripper when the victims are much more deserving of our attention? Why?
1: Why is that? Do you think it's it's true of it's true of murderers throughout? history I mean Peter Sutcliffe I wonder how many people could name his victims other than people who were directly affected by those appalling murders and I just think it's and I think particularly when it's violence against women I think that's that's and very often when you read transcripts particularly historic transcripts but sometimes shockingly more recently the assumption that the women were somehow to blame or complicit mm. in some shocking so I think that's why it's so important that we reclaim those stories really Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and there's a, there's a little coda to this story um to uh, I'll, I'll connect with Polly Nichols because uh during during lockdown um I I got into the music of uh, a folk duo called Ohuli and Tito. I don't know if you've heard of them. You yeah. um, you know the BBC TV series Gentleman Jack. Yes. I don't know if you've right. They they composed the song and performed the song that covered the credits at the end. So it's a brilliant they're brilliant wonderful original two women um, folk musicians and they composed this song and I I just love their music. I love their music. And I listen to a huge amount of O'Hooley and Tito. Um, I'll be music. looking them up. <laughs> oh, do. They're fabulous. So I sent off all their CDs, love their music. Anyway, at some point in the middle of lockdown, I suddenly thought, Polly needs a song. Polly needs a song. And I need O'Huli and Tito to write it. So I contacted them through the website. <laughs> they Quite what they thought, this mad vicar from the middle of London. (laughs) (laughs) Can you write a song about a victim of Jack the Ripper? But um, I did. And I sent them a copy of Hallie Rubenhold's book. Oh, did you? They could have a bit. And they got straight back to me and said, right up our street, we'll do it. And so they've written the most fabulous song called Polly. And it's on their current album called Cloudheads. Um, It was released in April. And in at the start of November, third of November, they came and performed here at St Bride's so oh, wow, Polly heard her song performed for her, and it was sung on the place where she would have stood to take her marriage vows. That's quite something there's a real circularity there somehow.
0: I love <laughs> that you did that, yeah but but that's the best thing about the kind of well, work. Well so your I duty of care extended quite far to her. You know when you think <laughs> you know and and I, so I'll definitely be listening to that and looking that up. And and for anyone who hasn't read The Five by Hallie Rubenhold it is utterly brilliant. It's mm. incredible- Mm. And I love Mm. how she restores Mm. these women's lives and gives them back their dignity. But the, the most moving thing to me, I don't know what you felt, Alison, was a bit at the the very end of the book, she lists the items that were found on the women's bodies and it's so revealing, isn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the things I sent to Ohuli and Tito. I sent that appendix because it just lists the possessions that Polly Nichols had when she was killed and apart from the clothes she was in, it's something like a broken bit of mirror,
0: yeah, a nothing, piece of isn't it? soap,
1: you know, a, a scrap, scrap of a bit of comb, or exactly. And that's all she had. That's what she had in the world, and she was not unique. That's what's so no, shocking. No, this is
0: awesome. the awful thing. You know, we, we're talking about this woman, this particular woman, but she was replicated, goodness knows how many thousand times over by yeah. other women who would have met ends like that that didn't go on to become notorious so we'll never know their names
1: yeah absolutely and i think what's also brilliant about hallie rubenhold's book is she describes the context so well she Mm. doesn't doesn't just tell the story of these women she gives you a real meticulously researched picture of what life was like in victorian london then
0: yeah you know the
1: circumstances in which people lived. that You know, the odds stacked against women whose lives fell apart, you know.
0: And what women haven't, you know, uh, experienced some sort of tragedy, a divorce or the death of a child or something awful in your life that nowadays we have were so protected and wrapped up in this cradle of care, but that wasn't there for women of the the sort of nineteenth century, was it? There was no welfare
1: state. Not at all. And and one of the really shocking things was the discovery that if her husband accused his estranged wife of living off immoral earnings, he didn't have to support her financially. So that's all right then, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Women were damned
0: but then there was it was a hopeless scenario for many of them, wasn't it? absolutely the thing I took from that was there but for the grace of God I mean imagine being a woman in the in the 19th century walking those streets yeah and we tend to look at those times don't we the sort of you know the foggy lamp-lit streets and Mm -hmm. women of ill
1: repute
0: but actually this was just life as a woman
1: Mm -hmm. we would all have faced that and and she was murdered six years before my paternal grandmother's birth. So it's that recent. Yeah, when you look
0: at when you put it in context like that, yeah, yeah. it's an incredibly moving book. um I went to the launch of that actually, Helen Ruben Tubach, yeah. and she did such a good job researching yeah. it. She was so fired up, I think, and passionate and angry about it that it just took hold yeah. of her, and she yeah. she did the best job with that. That's to me mm. is a perfect sort of example of yeah. revisionist history.
1: Yeah. And everyone should read that. Book. Absolutely.
0: Every- Absolutely. Because as you say, it holds a mirror up to the times. It's not it's not a history book, in a sense, is it? Because this mm. is still happening
1: now. Mm. But I think that going back to your previous question about our obsession with murderers, mm. isn't it interesting the quantity of hate mail she's had? Oh, yes. Which yes. quite shocking. You think, what is that about?
0: I know. I find that very odd. The the sort of the cult of, and I use that word cult because it feels like that, of ripperology and the sort of venom that was directed at her for daring to question yeah. the narrative yeah. around it. Mm. You know, there's whole tourist industries built on that. It's a very odd, odd world out there, I think, mm. <laughs> delving Absolutely. into the murky world of that Have we time um, just to to finish by talking about another extraordinary woman called Josephine Butler, a social campaigner. Can you tell us about Josephine?
1: Certainly. I mean, there have been another of uh, a number of women, um, particularly in the Victorian era, who and and again, they were going so much against the grain of their class and, you know, everything else, um, really stepping out and, and speaking out against social injustice of course Josephine Butler worked especially amongst impoverished women she was outraged you know that there was this whole business about licensing prostitutes and, and enforced uh, you know women could be picked up subjected to incredibly degrading treatment assuming they were prostitutes having enforced medical examinations and then being certified to work as prostitutes and it was outrageous often these were just poor women And the whole thing was so appalling. And she campaigned to repeal that legislation. She was also passionate about education as well. So you have women like Josephine Butler, but she wasn't the only one because, of course, you've got Samuel and Henrietta Barnett, um, who founded Toynbee Hall. And interestingly, the Beyond the Streets tour, the alternative Jack the Ripper tour that I first did, spoke about Toynbee Hall. Because, of course, the Barnets and Henrietta Barnett was very much part of that huge social reformers there in Whitechapel, and they promoted ed- again education of of the those who who were deprived of it, but also they were they were passionate about reducing the scale of social distance. They wanted to you know, goodness me, we need that message today if you think about the gap <laughs> yeah, of- oh yeah, widening. <laughs> We need another Henrietta Barnett, I think to just hang on. We need to we need to narrow that division now.
0: Yeah. And Toynbee Hall is a fascinating place. I mean it's worth a visit if you if you're in London because like you say, in terms of social campaigning and reform, it was also the site the same year as Jack the Ripper was on the streets of yeah. the match women's strike. And so yeah, the women absolutely. there protesting against, you know terrible conditions in that Victorian factory so that seems to be like a kind yeah. of real microcosm of history that place
1: Toynbee Hall um, and as you say we we learn so much from history we learn so much from history and often I'm shocked to discover the parallels because I think we kind of assume we're progressing and you suddenly yeah. think hang on a minute <laughs> so,
0: do you feel we learn from history I, 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 <laughs> I only ask I ask this because this morning I spent um. I'm helping a lady called Rini Salt, who is a Holocaust survivor, um, write her memoirs for release on the 80th anniversary of the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. And I said to her, mm. what do you, she speaks out because she feels mm. it's her duty to do so. And I said, do you feel we have learned 80 years on from history? And she said, no, mm. no, I don't feel we've learned. I will continue to speak out because it's it's my duty to do so, but it saddens her to say that she doesn't feel we've learned.
1: Mm. Uh, and that my own... me sad. Yes, my answer is not nearly enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. We can
1: learn from history, we do not learn from history nearly enough and I think people's memories are so short, you know. You yeah. do the bit you're in, you know the bit you're in, you assume. You're...
0: Yeah, but nothing's but, really new,
1: is it? No, no, and, and tradition tradition is what we've done for the last three years, you know. it's kind of... yeah.
0: <laughs> Maybe we look back at the history of St Brides and that can tell us so much. Oh, absolutely,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh, you have just filled my head with stories. <laughs> <laughs> I literally feel my brain expanding. That was just incredible. I haven't even told you all the interesting bits yet. Oh, I'm coming to do the tour. So yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So many fascinating stories and women and lives lived such rich, rich lives. Um, Alison, thank you so much for your time. I feel like this is a very busy time for you because we're
1: we're only how many days off Christmas now? um i think we're in the thick of about 26 carol services so it's quite nice not to be singing once in royal david city <laughs> this That's what i'm
0: doing most of this yeah. so i'm incredibly grateful for you taking time out of that that packed calendar to talk to me but thank you so much for such a fascinating very... conversation i enjoyed every second of it
1: you're very welcome
0: i really hope that you enjoyed that conversation If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.